Let's go focus. Breathe. Now pull the thing up. Go, 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 go. Up. You've got it, Rawdon. You've got it. Stand. Stand up. Very good. Times have changed, Rawdon. I remember, uh, vaguely, I do remember when you used to be able to smoke cigarettes on planes. Trains. Trains. Automobiles. <laughs> yes. All the above. Certainly any indoor arena, restaurants, bars, all those kind of things filled with uh, plumes of cigarette smoke. <laughs> it's much different, but we were on our way up here to the studio today to record the podcast. And, we, we were. And I was my particularly surly self, lumbar erectors cramping with every step. <laughs> Heaving in, and wheezing yes, as you, as you wheezing a, lumber 110 kilos. Yeah, <laughs> weaving in and out of the crowd and uh, pretty much every, almost every person went past managed to puff a, a plume as he called it of smoke into our into our faces, faces and we yes. inhaled it and like every every you know ounce of oxygen you know i could get in is is, is utilized I, I need that yeah yes. keep moving and uh <laughs> it wasn't appreciated tom no it is quite offensive when you it's forced upon you you're just taking a yeah. big suck of someone else's smoke that's been in, inside their lungs it's yeah a, it's sort of like kissing them i suppose it's very unpleasant yeah, very Sure, smoke if you like. That's 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 your yeah. We're, not, we're not saying not for, saying for one don't second smoke. don't smoke. You no. know, it, that's your provocative. You yes. know, uh, but just don't blow it in our face. Exactly. Massive show coming up on the program today, Rawdon. Program. My mistake. Yes. <laughs> our special guest will be Menno Henselmans yeah. from Bayesian Bodybuilding. Really, really fascinating character. I'm looking forward to picking his brains. Yeah. You've done some consults with him. He's very. Very articulate and uh, analytical, analytical, extremely well read. He has a background in science and statistics, yes. and that background has helped him form his Bayesian bodybuilding methodology. Yeah, and uh, he's going to bust a few myths and and give his spin on some really <laughs> pretty, interesting and controversial, very controversial. Pretty much, he, he'll spend the uh, the entire interview basically dispelling all the. Um, <laughs> the facts and figures that we give our listeners <laughs> every week, <laughs> saying, yeah, do this, works yeah. in the trenches, yeah. and he'll point out why it doesn't work why it and doesn't why you shouldn't work, do it. Yes. But anyway, we'll, uh, we might edit those bits out and it'll be probably a five-minute interview, but <laughs> yes. uh, we're going to get men on. But really excited about that. I've just come back from the Gold Coast where I had four days at Andre Benoit's Hypertrophy Boot Camp. Touch of the Benoit. Touch of the Benoit. Touch of the Tyrone's were up there as well. I think it was at uh, Tight yes. Fitness. Yes. Uh, up, up there, there on the Gold Coast. A, a tight fitness on the Gold Coast. Tyrone. Yeah. Tyrone Jensen's uh, gym. He, he's a gorilla of a man <laughs> up there. He's the, <laughs> he needs his bananas, that's for sure. All those bananas can cause Great. some um, digestive distress from time to time. And he, <laughs> he, he uh, delivered as promised. Yes. As you said, he farted during the Look, it's standard time, the but awesome guy. A smart guy knows what he's doing up yeah. there and uh, certainly practices what he preaches. And it was a really good gym where I had a, had a great time. So I'll go over some of the key things. You, you take away so many things when you have a four-day camp, but I'll go you over do. some of the, the key takeaway points that I picked up yep. when I was up there. Exciting. If it fits in your macros. We're just going to briefly, would you say, Tom, dip our toes into that one? Yes. No lab coats on? No lab think? coats. No, 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 no. We're not going to go through the actual yeah, we're uh, not the breakdown a, of a each controversial no. podcast and have a, a riot in the Eagle Waves Cafe. No, we're not going to do that. But <laughs> I think, yeah, I think it would be a good idea just to add a little spin on it and uh, pros and cons. Why well, it's good for sometimes it fits your macros, but it's not all bad. But we'll uh, we'll break that down. Cam will take a running, flying spin of our <laughs> wheel of fortune and we'll pick a winner from our database cleanhealth.com.au forward slash podcast enter yep. your name and email go in the raffle well the double backhand and reverse tomahawk the old tomahawk very very nice mate we'll have uh, Menno Henselmans from Bayesian Bodybuilding coming up a bit later on in the program yeah, we have to get the... Now, that dude seriously has the white lab coat on. Oh, yes. Yeah. Bunsen burner, beakers, stethoscope, yeah. works. I've just come back from the Gold Coast, Rawdon. I had four days up there in the sunshine at Andre Benoit's hypertrophy boot camp. Therapy session for you, Tom. Yeah. Let it all out. Just let it all out. <laughs> just let it all out. Um, but it was, uh, man, it was a great course. Yep. You have got a consult with him tomorrow. So you're going yeah. to spend some one-on-one time with Andre. I will as well. I mean, we've had him on the podcast here, but you kind of forget that he has had so much experience. Yeah, yeah. He as did. an athlete himself, 
you know, all working with Charles Poliquin from the early days, all yeah. the athletes he's trained, all this, all the funny old stories that he's got. It's, yep. it's good value just to hear him talk about things. Well, you know, he, he was the, the downhill uh, bobsled, you know, the one where they run. Cool runnings. Yeah, but they run and they push it. And they sprint as fast as they yeah, can. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> He's very, very good at that. Oh, no, he actually doesn't that's do that. That's why I need to do all those pull-ups, <laughs> thicken out his quads. Yes. Oh, hang on. <laughs> hang on. Yeah, well, anyway, he sat down and sort of pushed him with his hands. But yeah. either way, yeah, elite-level uh, Olympic athlete and obviously, you know, uh, privileged to, to even just be in the uh, uh, same room as someone like that is, for me, is a, is a privilege. And mm. I'm really looking for. It was great to have him on the podcast, like you said, but it'd be great to get him one on one because he not only is he a wealth of knowledge, but he's a, a really nice guy. A genuinely nice guy. Yeah. Yes. Shooted the uh, hypertrophy camp up with uh, at Tight Fitness there yes. with Tyrone Jensen. Yep. So look, I won't go through everything in detail, and no. this is in so, no particular order of preference, but here's just a few things that I took away which I'll either apply or found very interesting. Yeah. First of all, anyone who trains consistently, whether they're a physique athlete or a sporting athlete, if they're yep. just general population client, if they're coming in training with you three or four times a week, relatively diligent with their nutrition, they are to be considered a high-performance human being. Oh. So that's not just the domain of the pro athlete. Interesting. If you're you and I, I think we can now classify yes. ourselves as high performance human beings. Maybe our listeners, high performance human beings. I think we have a fairly large percentage of high performance humans yes. listening to this show, but it's a valid point, Rawdon, because essentially your results will always be equivalent to the quality of your recovery. And mm. if you have that mindset of a high performance human being, you uh, you know you really you. value recovery, mm. you value nutrition, you see the importance of sleep and supplementation. And uh, I think you just generally hold yourself with a little higher esteem. Yeah, and, which uh, certainly doesn't hurt. Yeah, Take a little bit more pride in yourself and, 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 and what you do in life, definitely. Yeah, and if you also think about it, Rod, and a lot of these people that we have at Clean Health, apart from training three or four times a week, they're executives, they're businessmen and women, they're out there breaking deals, they're moving yeah. money around, they've got yeah. families, they've got things, they're busy in a city, you know. It, it's yeah. a high-performance, high-stress environment they live. They need to be able to perform to their optimum, and that's how we should treat them. Yes, I like it. Key point. Okay. Another one, mate, which was really fascinating is some of the methods that Andre uses yeah. to bust a plateau for advanced athletes or, or, yes. or those people who have a, a much higher training age. And I won't give away all of his secrets, but yeah. if you think about the, the spectrum of strength qualities from uh, relative strength right through to strength endurance, yeah. uh, the more advanced the athlete, the more they're probably going to move towards that relative strength end of the spectrum. So, so, so for our listener, heavyweights, you know, low time and attention. Exactly. The more advanced you get, you want to tap into new uh, muscle fibers, you're lifting heavier weights, mm-hmm. lower repetitions. But there comes a point, and, and he found this with uh, an, one of the Olympic teams he was training for seven years, right. and then for a long period of time, and all of a sudden they hit a point where he just, they weren't getting the results that they had always gotten and he hit this massive plateau with all of his athletes and he had to think well what a, I can't take the reps any lower because they're you know they're, they're so, like minus reps <laughs> minus reps they're so yeah. advanced so he had to think right outside the box and take them far up to the other end of the spectrum to get a result and so he has a specific technique of shocking the system so horrendously that it forces the body to release what he terms dormant strength it's a a specific method that he has for unlocking dormant strength within a highly trained athlete Mate, if you're you interested just... in that, I would contact Andre and find out. I'm not, oh, I can't give away all of, can't give away all of his secrets. Dangling that carrot, but uh, it's that sounds um, interesting. Yeah, it is really interesting. The yeah. way you described, it, I'm assuming some sort of high lactic acid, horrible work capacity type thing, because you sort of pursed your lips and you know, <laughs> sort of scowled as you were talking about this this drastic uh, training stimulus. But yeah, okay. And that was fascinating. He also went into mm-hmm. his own training system. So he has developed his own training system. It's the Erdner training method that's Andre spelt backwards very clever um, but basically the the method for an advanced athlete the way he structures this particular system is to provide some initial exercises to activate the nervous system before you get into the heavy lifting right. so rather than starting the workout with a meat and nuts he, he's got a he's got a specific technique uh, sets and reps rest periods to activate the central nervous system before you then get into the heavy work the meat and nuts. Uh, the meat and nuts. And okay. he's found that it has very good results for strength and hypertrophy for for uh, the high intermediate to advanced uh, trainee. Uh, for the performance 
uh, athlete, perhaps, Tom? For high-performance humans. Humans, yes. yes. Well, that's all our listeners, Tom, so yeah. maybe all of them. Of course, dangled another carrot. Not going to tell us how to do it, are you? Well, I mean, I'm just trying to, you know, get a bit of a discount off uh, my the consult next, with Andre, yes. you know, or the next phase of programming. Is Very good. Now, Rodden, I know you don't count your own calories particularly fastidiously. You do with your day. clients, yes. let you know how many calories they're on, but mm. Uh, mm. but uh, you don't count your own. And <laughs> Tom, is that a can of worms you got in I'm your hand there? I'm hoping the can of worms because <laughs> if you did, you might be tempted to say, "Well, I've got this many calories to play with. Can I fill them all with just uh, wheat bix and custard and sultanas, yeah. plump sultanas, and perhaps, st- and still get the same results?" Yes. Well, I guess, yeah, if it fits your macros. I think it's a little out of... It's not so in vogue as what it was maybe six to eight months ago. Like, mm. it seemed to be all the, you know, this On social and media, and there yeah, was a lot of back and forth yeah, about it fits like in your macros. Blah, 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 and all this sort of stuff. And Look, if it works for you, great. Like, I don't, I'm not going to begrudge you for no. it or say it's wrong. And this is the point we're getting at, mate, because it does actually work for lots of people. Yeah, you look, know, there's uh, plenty of people out there who get in a good shape with an if it fits in your macros approach, eating Twinkies and jelly beans for dessert and stuff like that. They can still still get in good shape. Now, yeah. is it optimal for health? Would they get in better shape if they ate better quality calories? Maybe. Maybe. Who knows? Exactly. And, and they have they have actually done various you know guys in the industry have done decent decent experiments on Twinkies and things like that. Uh, you know, I think they had some whey and uh, you know, just to get their protein intake up a little bit. But generally, the the bulk of what they ate was was crap. Yep. And uh, they still dropped down, and you know, I think they put muscle on, and it was a decent result. So you can't yep. argue the fact that if it fits a macros, it does actually work. You know. Yes. Um, considering a, a calorie is a calorie, so every uh, doesn't matter where the the fat comes from. If it's a gram of fat that's in your uh, so two thousand calories, ten percent, two hundred. 20% uh, fat for the day, so you've got 400 calories in fat that you can have. Divide 400 by 9, it's how many grams of fat, so you can just pick and choose where you get that fat from. Could Might be, be a Mars bar or uh, you know, some or, ice cream. Or, or an avocado. Yeah, or an avocado, exactly. Fat's a fat's a fat. Exactly. So you can sort of pick and choose when you'd consume a, a bulk of your calories. So it might be, you know, in, in a 24-hour period, you got to get these many calories in. So you might save your fats until dinner time, so you can have that uh, the, the handful of Twinkies after dinner or whatever it is you want to eat. Um, but it's it's sort of along the lines of uh, all the calories are equal, and you got this much protein to have, this much carbohydrates, and this much fat. So you just pick and choose and mix and match and, and get it from wherever you want. It doesn't yep. really matter. Uh, so that's essentially if it fits your macros. So obviously, you're, where it still will work is you're still considering, you know, you're still probably choosing to keep a carbohydrate macro intake low-ish. You're probably still choosing to keep protein relatively constant, and then you're, you know, you might have your fats a little bit higher. So I guess you're still to elicit body composition change. You're still doing the fundamentals of what you and I probably do with our clients, albeit through different food or macronutrient choices. But you know, it, it, someone that's doing if it fits your macros, they're not fundamentally missing, you know, being in a caloric deficit or a caloric surplus. They're yes. still the fundamentals of fat loss are still being applied. They're still so, being deliberate about what they're eating. Yeah, exactly, and still count calculated choices so yes. they're still deciding to have 30% carbohydrates you know 50% protein and 20% fats to make up 100% of caloric intake so they're still making all those choices so you know they're not as ill-educated as what you might think and, and in actual fact they're probably far more OCD than everyone else because they've it. actually like, can you imagine doing that trying oh. to break down you know well I have this fat from here this like, sugar from here the carbs from here I'll have carbs as sugar and carbs are sugar anyway sugar is carbs but you know what I mean, and, and they pick and choose. So yes. really, you, you probably the more OCD the individual, the more likely you'll do if it fits your macros. But um, yeah, so that's pretty much what, what it is. Who do you think is going to be best on that that sort of approach? Because one of the arguments is that some of the people who get in shape using if it fits in your macros approach are those who are generally speaking quite genetically gifted anyway and it, yeah. it wouldn't really matter what they eat if they're training reasonably hard then they're going to get into shape because they've got those genetics yeah for sure and for, it, it, for someone who's not blessed maybe they don't have the leeway to get away with having poor quality calories yeah and i guess over time the nutrient density will probably catch up with you i really i think if it fits your macros could be used short term maybe to get ready for a show or something like that but uh 
an abundant amount of, of trans fats and, and, and uh, you know the poor fat choices that are going to be pro-inflammatory you know over time I'm pretty sure that's going to exactly. work against your favor yes. and we said a fat's a fat's a fat but we know that obviously that's not yeah. the case I mean it, it, it isn't it isn't like for, for fat loss it probably does come down to a fat is a fat is a fat same with the carbohydrates carbohydrate carbohydrate protein 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 for fat loss as long as you're in a caloric deficit or for the fat gain or muscle gain or weight gain as long as you're in a caloric surplus then it'll work but it's more over time where these things fall apart and and the you know the micronutrient which just the nutrient density that's where it's going to come and bite you on the butt later in life and and any long term because generally a lack of fiber you know and in, in, uh, generally it's processed foods for if it's not always i mean they can still make choices and just have like a bar of chocolate after dinner mm. and the rest of the day looks like yours and mine where they're eating proteins and, and, and carbs and vegetables and things like that so uh, variations of it fits your macros but where i think it it it, it works for some is is psychologically you know some individuals find it very hard to adhere to a nutrition plan that is void of anything that they would normally eat yes so uh, a twist on if it fits your macros you know i have factored things in like that i have done programs where you know they will eat a 100 gram block of chocolate after dinner i mean mm. i just broke it down how much how much uh, protein carbs and fat is in that chocolate and then i've got the the you know how I design a nutrition plan, I set the protein up, okay, the training, I put some carbs around there, boom, boom, boom. Then I'll put the fats, whatever's left. So I got the protein set up for the individual, I got the carbs set up where I wanted them, and then I had X amount of calories left, okay. Chocolate bar there, a little less fat for breakfast. And then they're adhering to the nutrition plan, they're compliant, they're dropping fat because they're in a caloric deficit. So yeah, for that individual, it was a twist on if it fits your macros. And then over time, okay, I take the chocolate away. You know, it might just be cheat meal on the weekend. They get some chocolate, but and wean them off it if you will. But you know, hell, if it if they're getting in shape and and their only vices they've gone from eating you know what we consider crap all day long to eating you know a, a, a bar of you know chocolate after dinner, that that's pretty good. It's a real improvement. Real yeah, improvement. You yeah. know, and um, so for that reason, uh, you know. Uh, if it fits your macros, it's uh, it's not that big a deal, to be honest. Yes, it's, I think Charles Poliquin mentioned when he we spoke to him on the program that over time and what you were suggesting before, yeah. and just the, the pro-inflammatory nature of those foods will eventually yeah. catch up to you. And if you are one of those people who maybe is not as genetically gifted as the next, at some point the level of inflammation at the body will put a halt into achieving your genetic yeah. potential. Yeah, yeah, and that, and that really does over time and the toxicity in the body and um, you know the lack of fiber and uh, and all those things lack of fiber lack of omega 3s yes can catch up yeah exactly and um, so really short term I think it, it's fine for cheat meals it's great you know if you're gonna uh, oh, I've got a wedding on the weekend I'm gonna have to just do that that's fine okay this is what I want you to eat the first half of the day then go for your life in the second half of the day yeah. and, and then they manage to you know consume whatever the food they wanted it fits your macros they uh still hit their macros for the day they didn't blow their diet out they were still in a a caloric deficit whatever the goal might be for that individual and they're still compliant so from that perspective that that client's uh, much better headspace rather than that they blew everything out and the whole whole preps failed so do i think it's a good idea um yeah for some individuals it can work some individuals that are you know have those uh challenges psychologically to adhere to something that's uh you know a little more you know conducive to, to body composition then i think it has its place but uh i think if you're in the business of building muscle um and hypertrophy is the name of the game then i really don't think that you're you know then i think you really need to look at your, your quality of food choices you know the complete protein sources you know not your uh incomplete um you know soy whatever like yeah. you know then you might start playing around with different protein yep proteins of protein no then i think uh fundamentally you want to start looking at more quality foods but really i think you'll get to a point where if it fits your macros will have to be thrown out the door yeah and then you eventually come come around and you have to do have to clean up that nutrition and and really focus on good quality uh nutrients going in but to a point i think if it fits your macros and for a short period can certainly work certainly work yeah Oh, 
what's that, mate? You're wobbling away there, just dancing to the music. Oh, yeah. It is that time again, the Under the Bar Clean Health subscriber raffle. Very popular. Oh, widely successful. You get the uh, Deluxe Clean Health Shake at the stainless steel water bottle, the drawstring gym bag, the cooler bag for all your meals. Yes. Cam, give it a spin. Yeah. It's a big one. Oh, it's so big. That's the biggest one yet, I think. It's almost like a, a fan. It is. It's spinning. Cooling me down. Your locks are blowing yes. in the breeze. Yeah. Oh, now it's slowing down a little bit now. It is. It's you always time for a haircut for you, mate, by the you way. Better, you better start fluffing that paper. Paper around. Oh, is it? oh uh, subscriber number 196, David Rake. David Rake, well done, mate. You are the winner of the Clean Health Podcast. Bye. The crowd goes wild. Yes. Cafe stands and yes. applauds. Yes. If you'd like to be a part of the segment and win the podcast pack like David Rake, subscriber number 196, <laughs> then go to the Clean Health website, cleanhealth.com.au forward slash podcast. Enter yep. your name and email. Get into it. To win. Well, Rawdon, as we mentioned at the top of the program today, we have a very special guest on the podcast, someone who you've been doing some consulting with and, as we alluded to, has an interesting background, part scientific, part yeah. statistical. Menno Henselmans, and I won't make an absolute dog's breakfast of this introduction and try and explain to the listener the, uh, the methodology behind Bayesian bodybuilding or Bayesian probability. Suffice to say that the, the term Bayesian refers to an 18th century mathematician and theologian Thomas Bayes. Theologian, word of the day, Thomas. (laughs) (laughs) But what I have noticed in doing a bit of research on the whole uh, Bayesian probability is that it's actually quite applicable to bodybuilding because as you and I have discussed on many occasions, uh, there's just so many different variables in the world of bodybuilding. And uh, we'll get Menno to explain this himself because he's the man who came up with his system. But um, he's moving and shaking in the industry now, doing a lot of prep and uh, producing some good physiques with some some good techniques as well. So uh, it'll be an interesting chat to get him on. So Menno, I think we're talking to you from Spain. Welcome (laughs) to the program and uh, thank you very much for your time. I'm indeed in Spain and uh, it's my pleasure to be here. Uh, As for Bayesian bodybuilding, it's a method that I came up with based on my, uh, my background my master's and my bachelor's, which were basically in behavioral economics. Um, and there was a lot of statistical application, also for minor in statistics. And there I came into contact with the, the Bayesian way of thinking, which is almost exclusively used in economics and statistics. And basically, even if you don't understand any of the mathematics, it's just a rational way of thinking. It's evidence-based basically specifies how to form rational beliefs based on the available information. And that's basically what I do uh, for bodybuilding. So in terms of comparing it to science, science is a system to find truth basically, or a system to, to gather knowledge and the Bayesian method specifies how to translate that knowledge into practical advice. Yes. It's funny because Rodin and I discuss this all the time, but you have the science of bodybuilding or body composition and then you then you have things that work in the trenches and that bodybuilders have been using for years and years and years and and there's a this murky blurred line in between yes. the two where they kind of cross over mm-hmm. yeah exactly there was um, an interesting case study that was just published a few days ago I think uh, where a bodybuilder was put on um, a supposedly scientific uh, diet and exercise program and he died to contest shape, they tracked him throughout this entire period, had a lot of measurements, very interesting case study. Uh, however, that guy lost about half of, the weight, half of the weight that he lost was muscle mass. So probably that that way of dieting and that way of exercising was not optimal for that person. So it goes to show that applying what is generally found to be scientific evidence or scientific methods is not always the best way to go about it. And I don't think that's because of an inherent limitation of science, because uh, science really, I forgot who it was that said this, in theory there is no difference between practice and theory, however in practice there is. I think that really (laughs) sums it up well. Yes, indeed. Oh yes, you're successfully confusing me now, Menno. Yeah, basically what it, what it means is that a theory, there, there is no real distinction between a theory and practice. Uh, usually a theory is just a, a simplified model of reality, but once a theory has been fully developed, say 
gravity or energy. And it, it's fully developed. We were pretty sure that this is really how nature operates. At that point, there is no longer any distinction between the theory and how things actually work. Yes. So it's only when evidence is really inconclusive that there is actually a difference between what works in the trenches and what we see on research. Mm. Yeah, uh, a spin on that. Uh, I thought it was quite funny that um, back in the day, you know, they were suggesting that anabolics, you know, didn't enhance muscle mass or performance, and it took thirty or forty years for the, you know, mm -hmm. it actually to prove that. Oh, okay. We, we, we the consensus is they now actually increase muscle mass and performance. So. <laughs> I thought that was uh, something as uh, obvious as that took that long to sort of prove uh, that it wasn't just a theory. So fascinating. Yeah, exactly. Same for protein intake. Yeah, yeah. Protein intake. Why don't we? Um, that's something that we did want to discuss today, Mino. Obviously, the you know the consensus out there amongst the in the trenches, shall we speak? But the the greater bodybuilding community, I think it's a, a you know a gram per pound of body weight is or, or two grams per kilo some sort of figure like that. I know you've uh, looked into the the actual, what is actually required, crunch the numbers and your Bayesian methodology. And uh, it's actually much less than that that we need to put muscle on and, and maintain, you know, body function and um, maintain muscle mass. You want to have a bit of a chat about that, protein target? Yeah, sure. I, um, I wrote an article called The um, Optimal Protein Intake for Bodybuilders, the myth of one gram per pound. And the title's sort of gives it away. There is no research indicating any benefit at all, in fact, not even in severe deficits, any population that we studied, and we studied a lot of populations using a lot of different methodologies, and not a single study has ever found any significant benefit of consuming more than 1.6 gram per kilogram of body weight, which I guess is about 0.7 gram per pound. Yep. So adding a safety margin to that, you get what is my default recommendation for most people to consume 1.8 gram per kilogram protein uh, per day per body weight. And I think that's 0.82 pounds per uh, or gram per pound. So it's not a major difference from the, the one gram per pound, but it does say that all, that recommendation already includes a safety markup. So many mm. people sort of believe in the one gram per pound and preferably a whole lot more and basically you don't need to consume that much protein and you don't need to worry about that that much. Mm. I, I'm sorry, Tom, you were going to oh, jump no. in? So, Menno, that's, is that the minimum amount required or beyond 1.8 grams per kilo, there's no additional muscle growth, there's no greater benefit to eat more? Yeah, good question. When I say minimal, uh, that basically means the minimum required to stimulate optimal training adaptation, so optimal muscle growth, maximum muscle growth, maximum strength development. So it's the minimum for maximum development, basically, maximum gains. Okay, so any, any perceived benefit, uh, or is there any benefit going above that at any time? Like if you... Training twice a day. Training twice a day, do or... You're highly stressed. You're going through a stressful period, and you're training on top of that stressful uh, lifestyle. Is there is there any any reason why you might want to go above the 1.8 gram uh, per kilo? Uh, the only situations where I actually recommend it to clients is if the client is a complete novice going on a very very serious bodybuilding program, because that person can then build so much muscle mass that it is at least very conceivable that a higher protein intake has additional benefits in that person. And that's uh, interestingly something that a lot of people can't uh, wrap their head around, is that the more advanced you get, the lower your protein need becomes. Because during training, you break down muscle protein. And the more advanced you are, the more resistant you are to this kind of protein breakdown, because basically your body um, adapts to the kind of stress you impose on it, less protein is broken down, the body sort of realizes that uh, it's not a good idea to break down all this protein because you're going to have to build it back up again and even more super compensate afterwards. Furthermore, if you look at the other side of the equation of protein balance, uh, you look at protein synthesis, uh, there we see that it also decreases. So that makes perfect sense because the more advanced you get, the less muscle you can actually build. Yeah. So. Hence, we're back to the, the beginner who can gain tons and tons of muscle mass at a very rapid 
uh, rate, then at least one gram per pound might be a good recommendation, at least presuming the individual starts off on a very serious bodybuilding program. If we're talking about someone training three, maybe four times a week, uh, probably uh, the figure I just listed, um, 1.8 gram per kilogram is still more than sufficient. Yeah. The only other scenario that I think is really worth mentioning is uh, steroids, basically. If someone's on steroids, it's theoretically dubious if that person actually needs more or less protein. The reason they might need less is because steroids enhance nitrogen retention. They make your body, your, your body's protein metabolism more efficient, just as it becomes if you uh, become more advanced as a trainee. However, it also greatly increases muscle protein synthetic capacity, so the ability to build muscle mass. And usually, if everything is set up right, then I think the amount of muscle mass that you can build offsets the benefits um, you experience in terms of nitrogen retention. So in, I generally advise people uh, that are on steroids and actually know what they're doing to consume at least one gram per pound and skill upwards for higher dosages. Which is why uh, I think it makes sense that pro bodybuilders generally consume much more protein. Uh, they're on shocker, lots of drugs. So very, very controversial, um, man. Are you suggesting that pro bodybuilders <laughs> actually take anabolics? I think Ronnie Coleman said he didn't uh, back in the day, which was hilarious. Yeah, there's a priceless <laughs> interview where he says that. Yeah. Um, all right, man. Here's a, a, an interesting scenario, I suppose. The consensus is to gain muscle mass or body weight or bulk, whatever you want to call it. We, we put the calories up, the body come back to the calories in, calories out equation. So we need to consume more calories than what we actually need uh, in a given period. Um, so we have basically the, well, aside from alcohol, the three macronutrients. So if we do have to increase calories to uh, increase muscle mass slash body weight, um, where if protein at 0.82, there's no perceived benefit, but we still need to increase calories, where do you um, pull your calories from? I mean, is there, in, in that scenario where we're deliberately trying to bulk up, it, can, can we go above that uh, 1.8 per kilo or the 0.82 per pound? Uh, is there any negative effect? Uh, or is that like a, a better macronutrient to um, put your calories upward rather than if your carbohydrates are set with your training stimulus, your fats, obviously you can move fats up as well, but where do you like to, if you're bulking the individual, where do you like to move your calories? Like what macronutrients do you like to move? Yeah, I think um, in most of my programs, all macronutrients move up. Uh, I do like to keep protein. Um, I generally advise clients that protein is, is a minimum, but uh, I think there is a lot to be said to uh, keep the error margin below about 50% because there are some potential downsides to having too much protein uh, in your diet actually. Not for health, not, it's not the kidney issue or anything like that, but for example, high protein intake relative to carbohydrate and fat intake in your diet, uh, which becomes common if you use a high protein diet during weight loss in particular, mm. uh, increases sex hormone binding globulin levels, which decreases the amount of free testosterone in your diet and in general, the more protein you have, the less room you have for carbohydrates and fats, which can compromise um, performance in gym or um, the anabolic benefits of fats, for example. So depending on who you ask, my programs are generally seen as either being high in fat or being very mixed in terms of macronutrients. There is a, a huge um, difference in carbohydrate requirements between someone with a completely sedentary lifestyle training you know, three times a week in the gym and someone um, who is an athlete who does high-intensity interval training or from soccer or any sport like that. Mm. A huge, huge difference. It's not even in the same same league, not even in the same ballpark. Yeah, okay. So you generally like fats to come up uh, and make sure you, you got plenty of carbohydrates for the drive, the training intensity, fuel the intensity while they're training, and, and protein you generally like to keep around that 1.8 grams, you know, give or take, per yeah. kilo. Okay, cool. Tommy? So we have a minimum amount of protein that we need to keep everything going and build some muscle. What about with fat? What's the minimum amount someone should be on that you like to work with to keep androgen levels healthy and, and everything like that? 
as a minimum, I think the, the recommended daily intakes are um, pretty good. And they're about 70 grams of fat for women and 90 grams for men, depending on which institute you're looking at. Uh, many people go below these levels, especially during a diet. I think that's not a good idea. Uh, when calories become very sparse, I think it's a good idea to keep fats relatively high to maintain uh, anabolic hormone levels. And uh, depending on the kind of training you're doing, you get most of the decrease in calories from carbs. And as a usually, as an um, absolute minimum level, I like to recommend fats as about 40% of resting energy expenditure. Okay. So that's basically energy expenditure without factoring in type of training you're doing. Yep. Yep. 40%. Okay, man. Nice. And if you are, is there a, a threshold, upper threshold for fat intake? Like, say we're we have a, a client, we've we've uh, they're on x amount of calories. We increase calories to increase body weight, bulk them up. Uh, we've moved fats up. Is there an upper limit, or can you, you know, a couple of hundred grams of fat a day, uh, as long as it's in your caloric intake for the day that you've designed for the individual? Is is there a limit to what, how much fat you can take in? No, in general, not really. Uh, Paul Cherminet makes a very good case that uh, fats are actually the least toxic uh, macronutrients in terms of ingesting lots and lots of it. Off in bodybuilding cultures, there's a real um, phobia against high levels of fat intake, thinking high level of fat intake must make you fat. But that goes against the laws of thermodynamics. Yes. Um, it won't make you fat at all, and it can be very anabolic. So it's not uncommon to have fat intakes uh, well into the hundreds, closing in on 200 grams if you're a heavyweight bodybuilder on a bulking diet. And there's no reason at all if your diet's good, you're healthy, and the fatty acid balance is within the realm of uh, reason, then there's no reason at all to fear very high fat intakes. Okay. Mino, can you actually achieve a significant amount of muscle mass purely with proteins and fats? Is there a requirement for carbohydrates to build muscle? Uh, no, there actually, there actually isn't. The amount of carbohydrates in your diet is almost zero effect on protein balance. So there's, there's no direct need, depending on the type of training you're doing, if it's resistance training at a somewhat human level uh, of volume, then there's also very little requirement uh, for that, especially if you don't train twice a day. So yeah. uh, what a lot of studies also find is that during a ketogenic diet, when carbs are generally kept uh, in studies at least below 20 grams a day, mm. um, muscle building capacity is not hindered. And a new study from uh, the University of uh, Tampa that I posted on my blog, it's not, full text isn't out yet, but that suggests that actually on a ketogenic diet, at least during during a deficit, uh, muscle building capacity is actually greater than during a non-ketogenic diet. Right, so even if they're in a deficit? Yeah, yeah that's a common uh, myth, uh, an incorrect interpretation of the, the law of energy balance. Mm. Uh, you can definitely build muscle mass on a diet. In fact, it should basically be as expected in anyone but advanced level trainees um, if the diet set up well and the person can train hard enough. There are lots and lots of studies showing that this is possible and not just beginners. In beginners it's it's basically the norm in fact, even mm. on a crappy program with yeah. mediocre compliance. Yes. But even uh, elite athletes, the national Italian um, gymnast team also had a study also in ketosis by the way, they gained muscle and lost fat at the same time. Uh, like I said, many kind of elite athletes. There's also a study in, um, I think, rugby, not American football. I think they're rugby players, which were seriously advanced, like big guys. Mm. They also gained muscle lost fat at the same time. Does that sort of depend on the style of training that they're doing? So, like, if you were doing higher volume training, getting that cell swelling, you need those energy substrates to get into the muscle cell. But if you're actually just doing lower repetitions and, and increasing the amount of weight that you lift each week, does the body just adapt anyway, no matter how many calories you're eating? I think it's um, the sum of basically all the variables in your program, how much muscle you can build in a deficit. There's not really one factor that governs it. It's just the total stress that is applied to the body that basically puts the body or forces the body to still build muscle mass, even when energy is scarce. Mm. It's just a matter of providing the right type of stress so that your body prioritizes muscle growth over 
other things. Yes. Okay. And with that, you said that as long as the, the diet is uh, set up correctly, are you talking about back to those uh, fat targets, the, the 90 grams for the males, the, the 70 gram females and that 0.82 grams per pound of body weight? Is that what you're talking about by correct setup as long as those variables are there? Yeah, again, it's, it's everything. It's food choices, you know, everything, the, the whole control of inflammation, uh, sufficient fat intake, sufficient protein intake. Right. Uh, nutrient timing, it's got, yeah. uh, controversial topic, but uh, if you're eating, for example, one meal a day, then it's probably not going to happen for most people. It's, it's the sum of everything. Okay, so everything, sleep, stress levels, I mean, all those those normal fundamentals have to be in check, and then exactly. when you're in a deficit, you can actually still build muscle. Fantastic. Yeah. Uh, well, let's move right along. You spoke about keto diets there and the ability to build muscle mass. Why don't we quickly delve into a keto ketogenic diet? What are your thoughts on that? I know you've have, you've gone into ketosis for extended periods. What's your experience mm-hmm. been, and and are they a good way to reduce body fat uh, while maintaining muscle? Yeah, I think they are for many people. There's a whole list of indications and contraindications. The main benefit, I'd say. Uh, because I'm not entirely convinced of the, um, the the anabolic benefit of a ketogenic diet. It's, it's, at the moment, it's basically one study showing this, and it's kind of an outlier in terms of results. But uh, the main benefit, I say, of a ketogenic diet is the hunger suppression. Most people, and this is where the tricky thing with ketosis comes in, there is very high intra-individual variability, meaning different people respond differently uh, to a ketogenic diet, much more so than any other type of diet. Okay. Uh, but most people experience a very significant um, effect in terms of hunger suppression, appetite suppression, and during a diet, this is an absolutely major benefit because if, if you're not hungry, I mean, that makes dieting so much easier. Yes, tell me about it. <laughs> and if a person, for example, has chronically high inflammation levels, that may also be an indication for a ketogenic diet because. At least if you use smart food choices and you don't get all your fats from, uh, from oils and you skimp on vegetables altogether, then the ketogenic diet is very anti-inflammatory for most people. Okay. Other indications, certain neural disorders, uh, cardiovascular disorders can also be indications that a ketogenic diet uh, may work well. The main contraindication is compliance because the ketogenic diet is, is very restrictive. Yes. Many people can adhere to a ketogenic diet just fine for years on end, but I'd say most people actually can't, especially not people who basically just want to look great naked while still having lots of time for other things, being able to go out and eat whatever they want uh, on certain occasions. If you do that during the ketogenic diet, you're basically put out of ketosis immediately. And it's not a major problem, but I think a really serious detrimental effect of a ketogenic diet is the the transitory period, uh, also called the keto flu, during the period where your body becomes fat adapted and learns to use fats in terms of, or learns to use ketones instead of glucose as fuel. Many people feel really bad, and um, I've also experienced this, the, the keto flu in my case is just lethargy to a, a point that that's only rifled with extreme sleep deprivation combined with utter depression. It's it's really bad. It can be really bad for several days. Yeah. Some people are completely fine, um, but a lot of people aren't. And it can take you, the individual, it varies from person to person, I gather, but it can take uh, potentially a couple of months to get into full ketosis for some, yeah? No, most people do. Um, well, it's, it's an arbitrary thing, ketosis, because even uh, right now we all have ketones in our blood at very, very low levels, but they're there. And basically, uh, during fasting or during exercise, those levels tend to increase. And there's what, what we call nutritional ketosis is basically just an, an arbitrary cutoff that we say, okay, when ketone concentrations uh, reach this point, we say that person person is in nutritional ketosis. And that point is usually reached if you get carbs under 50 grams. Again, it varies a lot. And there are some very lucky individuals who can um, go into ketosis on, um, I think the highest in the literature is 194 grams of carbs. 
It's oh, uh, quite upstairs. Very nice. Yeah. But most people need to go under 20 to 50 grams of carbs to reach ketosis, and then it's generally about 48 hours before they reach that level. But uh, the, the MON figure, um, where that comes from is that keto adaptations, even when nutritional ketosis has been reached already, the keto adaptations and the fat adaptation, they can occur for at least several weeks. We know that it's at least a month, and there are a lot of indications that they can take several more months uh, before uh, keto adaptations have basically fully completed. Okay, okay. So, Mano, is there then any, I mean, obviously, if people are in a ketogenic state for months on end, I mean, is there any negative effect on the body for going for extended periods of time without any carbohydrates in the diet? Uh, there can be. and In general, I, I never recommend people to uh, remove carbohydrates from the diet entirely. It's For one thing, it's, it's really hard because there are uh, some carbs in in almost any kind of product. Yes. Uh, but secondly, the, I think a major pitfall that people uh, fall for uh, during a ketogenic diet is they think carbs are evil and we should ditch all carbs. And that's not true at all. In fact, I, I'd actually um, frame it the complete opposite way, and that's you want to consume as many carbs as you can while still staying in ketosis. Yes. And that generally means that even in a ketogenic diet, you're still consuming uh, very high amounts of vegetables. You need to pick them carefully, like uh, spinach, cauliflower, vegetables that have a low net carbs, because it's about net carbs, about glucose, not just carbs, for example, fiber doesn't yep. uh, enter into it, because it, it won't get you out of ketosis. Mm -hmm. And you should still be consuming lots of vegetables, your diet should still be very healthy, um, certain types of fruits, although it's tricky, unless you have um, a very high amount of uh, net carbs that you can consume in ketosis. But most people, at least in terms of vegetables, should still be a lot. And um, fruits like avocado should be a staple in most ketogenic diets, I think. Okay. Nice one. Well, I mean, we were talking about carb intake there and um, whether there's any um, issues, you know, in, in relation to staying in ketosis. What about uh, low carb intake for extended periods, full stop? Uh, is I mean, you've just said that you like to, you know, your clients and mm -hmm. you advocate as, as, you know, high carbohydrate as they can tolerate, affected by training, et cetera, and how much the individual can have. But um, is there any, because I've heard, you know, if you take your ability to m metabolize, uh, break carbs down uh, when you avoid them for extended periods is compromised. Is there any, any truth to that, that if you take that macronutrient out for an extended period, your body then has a a hard time when you reintroduce it? Um, there is a slight amount of sort of theoretical evidence uh, for what is called metabolic inflexibility. However, since you, you don't want to get rid of carbohydrates entirely, especially not uh, on just a low-carb diet. I mean, a low-carb diet generally means still eating lots of fruit, lots of vegetables, yeah. uh, maybe some potatoes, uh, just not having um, bread and rice as staples of your diet, basically. So um, metabolic inflexibility really shouldn't occur then. The only sort of indication that we have is that during ketogenic diet, if you then reintroduce um, lots and lots of carbohydrates, which is also what the, um, the University of Tampa study found, you can get, gain a lot of fat quickly that way. And whether that's due to metabolic inflexibility or sim simple thermodynamics, you don't really know that. But I do think it's a good idea not to indulge in pancake feasts uh, to um, celebrate that your ketogenic diet comes to an end, basically. <laughs> but other than, other than that, I think, no, you don't really need to worry about it. The human body is amazingly adaptive. And yeah. if you look at what many traditional slash paleo culture, cultures have eaten, its range of macronutrients is, is extremely high and also very seasonal. So you have many cultures that have lived for years and years or basically all their life on first very high carbohydrate intakes during the summer and then in the winter they shift to an almost ketogenic kind of diet and that mm. all goes fine. Yeah. yeah. Well, Menno, I actually quite enjoy pancakes and yes. maple syrup and things like that. So if I've done a big workout and maybe I've trained with Rawdon and I go for the pancakes and the maple syrup and he has a tub of brown rice or quinoa, is there any ultimate difference in what we're what we're eating from a from a muscle building perspective? Not much. 
Uh, I think the whole thing with clean eating, the differences are mainly what other types of compounds are in the food. I wrote an article called A Carb is a Carb, um, where I show that in general the type of carbohydrates you consume, just looking at macronutrients here, not micronutrients, not fiber, nothing mm -hmm. else, just uh, the type of um, food that is selected for uh, the carbohydrate you eat, but a simple carb, sugar, lactose, a starch, and it doesn't really matter what kind of carbohydrates or where the carbohydrate comes from in terms of the effect it has on your body composition. Yes. Okay. And at least within the context of someone that's relatively lean, healthy, and active. Okay, so you could even have a uh, chocolate milk post-workout. That would be fine. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean... <laughs> that's, what, that's what Tom's doing at the moment. He's working with a, a guy called Dan Garner. And uh, it's got him on chalky milk, but it seems to be working. He seems to be dropping fat and putting muscle on, so it's going very well. Mm -hmm. uh, man, I might uh, before we wrap things up, I, I might just delve into the the uh, quite controversial uh, refeed meals and resetting uh, metabolic rate and, and and all this sort of stuff. Um, scenario is you you you've been dieting down, the calories have been less than. Uh, what you need so you're in a caloric deficit and the the theory is that your metabolism will slow down the body perceives it's in a in a starvation mode so it'll ramp down thyroid etc etc and then to overcome that you know you, you feed a, the body an influx of calories the body senses everything's okay again metabolic rate increases and you repeat the process over and over uh, without causing too much uh, metabolic stress or down regulation What's your spin on that? Is there much merit in the, the refeed meal or, or day, or is, there a, or is it more logical just to take a longer period of time to lean the individual out and not be so aggressive with your um, uh, caloric restriction? Yeah, I'm not really a fan of uh, refeeds. Uh, we actually have a really good understanding um, of thyroids and leptin uh, regulation, and both of those things which govern your metabolic rate are governed by energy balance. So... Uh, yes, it's true that during a refeed your metabolism will increase, although not nearly to the extent that many people think. And a lot of it is simply because of the thermic effect of food. The more food you consume, it, it takes energy um, to absorb energy, basically. So that increases your metabolic rate. Your leptin levels will increase, again, not, not by any magical level, just um, related to the extent of caloric surplus. But basically, right after that, um, they go back down again, and there's there's no research at all showing that this increase in um, in metabolic rate is is more long lived than a day or two, which is basically the time it takes for your body to uh, get back into negative energy balance. So, if your your diet was your deficit wasn't uh, needlessly aggressive in the first place, then all you've basically done is put your diet on hold for a few days, and you know you may feel better. Uh, because those days you weren't dieting, uh, you had a lot of carbohydrates, many people like that, um, but at the end of those days, there's no real benefit in terms of body composition. Okay, interesting. Menno, when you're um, with your Bayesian method, you look at studies, you, you get in there, you read, do the dirty work, punch all the numbers, then you have a look at what people do in the gym and these systems that bodybuilders have been applying for years. I mean, how do you piece it all together and, and come up with your systems? <laughs> uh, okay, that's a good question. How can I answer that? Um, <laughs> it's, it's again, it's a, it's a combination of everything. I mean, um, I train and look at what my clients are doing. I think everything is valuable. Personal experience, definitely. What you see in clients, absolutely. Mm. Research, I mean, absolutely. Again, it's it's the combination of all these things, piecing everything together, that you can find out what really works, what doesn't work. Uh, anecdotes often can tell you uh, what works and what doesn't work, and research allows you to fine-tune that, really optimize things and understand why things work. Combine all those things, then you can get a real good, uh, proper understanding of how things work and how to optimize uh, your physiology to reach your uh, desired goals. Have you ever come across a scenario where you've done something with your own training or with a client and seen a result and it's just been flat out contradicted by the science? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's a um, kind of a weird example, but the satiety index of potatoes, there's uh, in the satiety index. I was going to say that, man. <laughs> <laughs> in the original publication by, uh, by Holtetal, 
they uh, founded the satiety index, which is basically how filling potatoes are, is uh, was absolutely through the roof, like three times as high as that of most other foods. And um, probably this is just a fluke because uh, subsequent research has found that potatoes aren't that much more satiating than other types of starches, and the difference is entirely explained by higher uh, fluid content of potatoes. But um, that's one of those findings that even if that was the only finding in research, I just say flat out, you know, it, it's not true. Any anyone can consume half a kilo of potatoes and uh, you know put that against something else, some, some kind of other starch or something that's uh, close to it. Yes. For, with the same level of calories, and you can just see for yourself that it's not true that potatoes are that filling. If they were, it'd be great. Everyone would be dieting on potatoes, and no one would be hungry ever. Yes, but it's not the case. <laughs> yeah. All right, man. I, um, obviously, you know you're recognised for only doing things that that actually work. Uh, what about supplement-wise? Are there any? Um, do you like the? I'm assuming creatine has got enough research to back up that but is there any anything you really like do you like uh, fish oil or you know uh, we won't go down the bcaa path i know your take on that but uh like whey protein creatine are there a few fundamentals that you you, you always like to use that that you recommend um no there's nothing i always recommend in my uh in my pt course i have um um, one week that's about supplements and it contains a whole basically guide of all supplements i think that are at least worth mentioning and the scenarios in which case uh, they're useful. And I intentionally left the page blank under the section of supplements I always recommend. Because there is literally no supplement I always recommend. The, thing that, the things that probably come closest are really not the shockers. Uh, you're talking about caffeine. Uh, it doesn't actually boost performance um, unless it, it takes you out of caffeine withdrawal, which is quite common for many people. Um, but it, it provides a nice psychological boost and mental energy level and motivation. Uh, creatine monohydrate is a tried and true unless you're a non-responder. Sometimes you can get tricky with uh, manipulation of insulin, insulin sensitivity, and still uh, become a creatine responder. Uh, but there are some people who don't have any uh, response to creatine. If you're not one of those people, definitely use creatine. Um, and creatine is also a good example, what I often tell clients, if you're not impressed with creatine, there's no magic pill out there. Absolutely not. It's just uh, anything you hear of is not nearly as established or as effective as creatine, at least in terms of building muscle and uh, increasing performance okay. for resistance training, this is. Yeah. All right, so no, uh, no magic pill or potion for me uh, today, Menno. Unfortunately not. <laughs> other, other than, like you mentioned, steroids, I suppose, but not that we're encouraging analysts to get on that path. Okay. Interestingly, what, what, what I mentioned there is that uh, there's actually a good literature on um, what, what many people say, you know, if there was a magic pill, they'd take it and uh, they'd become big and muscular and ripped and they'd, they'd feel awesome. But there's actually good literature on, on, um, on medicines where people, uh, like, you know, the average person that doesn't even lift, um, they have some kind of... Uh, Possibly uh, fatal or terminal uh, kind of pathology or disease, and they have they have pills for that. And you find that the compliance rate of actually taking those pills is, you know, you'd expect it to be 99, 97%. You know, on, on real bad, stressful, uh, in stressful periods. But no, sometimes it's it's really low. You're looking at uh, rates well below 90% sometimes, and that's pills people have to take to stay alive. I mean, if you can motivate someone to take pills and stay alive, then not even steroids are going to do it. <laughs> this is very That's true. I thought you were going to say uh, oxymethylone or something like that for the pill, but uh, all good. Yeah. So, oh. Mano, how can people get in contact with you if they're interested in what you've had to say or would like to work with you or, or you know, just read some of your work? Or the PT course that I'm involved in at the moment, which is fantastic. When's the next one of those running? Um, it hasn't been scheduled yet. It's probably going to be uh, Q1 2016, but um, easiest way to get just an, an email then and only then if I publish a new article, uh, you can uh, subscribe on my website, uh, BeijingBodyBuilding.com, MenoHenselmans.com will also get you there. Um, also on Facebook, Twitter, um, if you Google me, you basically get all of that. Uh, so yeah, if you subscribe, that's the easiest way to stay, stay in touch, basically. 
Right, uh, and you mentioned, uh, we'll wrap it up with, you mentioned you're involved uh, with a bit of a, an exciting study on the anabolic window, so we can look forward to reading that uh, in the coming weeks. Mm-hmm. Yep. Awesome. Right, I mean, well, thank you so much for your time, mate. Fascinating talking to you. Yeah, thanks, man. My pleasure. Thanks, mate. Talk to you soon. Bye. Right, see you guys. Bye. Bye. Well, another episode of Under the Bar, the Clean Health Podcast. Clean Health Podcast. Uh, and Tom. Uh, if you uh, were intrigued to find out how to bust a plateau oh, and, 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 carrot. and learn a few advanced training systems and walk away with a ton of good information, contact Andre Benoit. Really awesome course. It was great to be up there. And some really nice guys in that course as well. Always yep. good to go along to those things. Even if you're not a trainer, actually. If you're just an advanced or you're human interested being. in, in uh, high performance uh, human <laughs> improving your strength and, and yes. your body go along to one of those things you always learn a lot yep if it fits in your macros it does have its applications and yeah. broaden I mean you've used it successfully to help yeah program cheat days stuff like that uh, yeah. for, for individuals that do find it challenging but yeah I think there are better food choices out there but mm. for some for a short period it can work for sure it can work send us an email podcast at cleanhealth.com.au that has been the show bye bye <laughs>